we can talk about some of the specifics in terms of women's health that are impacted, uh, not just by the pandemic, but just by a general lack of access to care here in the United States. So, for example, access to birth control is a huge issue. There's areas of the country that we term contraceptive deserts because there's simply just not enough clinics or access to primary providers who can give these prescriptions to patients. And so telehealth, for example, at Nurex, we've seen a surge of more than 50% of requests in birth control during the pandemic alone. So in addition to what already was a barrier, the pandemic added another barrier for birth control. Let's take, for example, you know, sexually transmitted illness. We've seen over 120% increase in requests for STI testing from home, over 200% increase in requests for things like herpes, over 300% increase in requests for things like like emergency contraception. And that's something that uniquely affects women. We've also seen other conditions such as migraine. Women are disproportionately affected with migraines and with the stresses of the pandemic, the, the long hours that we spend in front of the screen, all of those things can make migraines worse. So at Nurse, we've lost the migraine line, for example, that allows us to treat women for these conditions. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. For those of you who've been listening to this podcast for the last few years, You've probably heard me say that inequality is everywhere, which is why it's going to take all of us to fix it. This is true in all aspects of life, from corporations to the arts, sports and politics. Gender inequality exists because, simply put, we value men and masculinity more than women and femininity. This is true whether you believe it or not. Take, for example, the simple act of going to the doctor. Men and women are likely to have very different experiences because doctors are socialized to value those experiences differently. Women are more likely than men to be misdiagnosed because doctors dismiss their experiences of pain and use men as the default standard for diagnosing women's symptoms, creating a gender gap in the quality of care that men and women receive. This is such a common occurrence that it has a name. According to a Vox report, in the 1983 movie Yentl, the title character, played by Barbara Streisand, pretends to be a man to get the education she wants. She has to change the way she dresses, the tone of her voice, and much more to get any respect. In the medical field, the term Yentl syndrome has come to describe what happens when women present to their doctors with symptoms that differ from men's. They often get misdiagnosed, mistreated, or told that the pain is all in their heads. This phenomenon can have lethal consequences. For example, Guardian reports that a global investigation into the implants industry found that more than a thousand women experienced problems with breast implants. This resulted in illness, complications, and in some cases, even hysterectomies. When men walk into their doctor's office and share their symptoms, doctors take that experience seriously. Men don't have a hard time convincing doctors that their pain is real. However, gender inequality ensures that women have an entirely different experience, having to prove or convince their doctor of their pain and hope that they'll be correctly diagnosed. This is the gender pain gap in medicine. 
It's not surprising that there's a gender pain gap given the distinct under-researching of women's health and the implications this has for medical education and training. In the book Invisible Women, Caroline Criado Perez points out that it's been historically assumed that there wasn't anything fundamentally different between male and female bodies other than size and reproductive function. So for years, medical education has been focused on a male norm. The doctor-patient relationship is a fiduciary one, which means it's based on mutual trust and respect being a core component of good care. The more barriers there are to understanding each other, the greater the risk to that quality of care. But many women do face significant barriers, including a lack of understanding of female-specific health concerns and a lack of awareness of sex-based differences in the way non-gendered health issues such as heart attacks are experienced. Consequently, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed or poorly cared for, which detrimentally impacts their health, well-being and life expectancy. The impacts can be disastrous. A 2016 study found that women were 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed following a heart attack. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Pena, who's a former physician to the White House Medical Unit, internal medicine doctor, army vet and a trailblazer in digital and telehealth. Dr. Pena will unpack the issue of gender inequality in medicine and how we can tackle this. The COVID pandemic really has highlighted some of these issues. They like to say the term she session is what the pandemic has caused. So women you know, have lost over 5 million jobs since the start of the pandemic, and that's a million more than jobs lost in men. And more than 2 million women have had to leave the workforce entirely, right? Women of color be more disproportionately affected. And so with loss of job, it's not just loss of income. That means loss of health insurance as well. So that creates a barrier to health care. And then the pandemic also just created more logistical barriers to care. You know, many women have had to take over the caregiving of family members, take over the care of children, remote schooling, running errands for vulnerable relatives, caring for people who are sick in their family. And that means that women have even less time to care for themselves. For younger women in college settings and the like, they've had to leave a lot of those living situations, moving closer to family, to work or study remotely. And with leaving college in those settings, they also leave their student health, leave campus, and, and that's another disruption in their health care. And so those are some of the other barriers. It's not just the virus itself, but it's those secondary effects, if you will, the secondary health impacts that cause women to have more difficulty accessing the essential health care that they need. And again, luckily, telehealth is a part of that solution by breaking down those barriers of convenience and cost for many of those types of essential care that, that women have now lost. We can talk about some of the specifics in terms of women's health that are impacted, uh, not just by the pandemic, but just by a general lack of access to care here in the United States. So, for example, access to birth control is a huge issue. There's areas of the country that we term contraceptive deserts because there's simply just not enough clinics or access to primary providers who can give these prescriptions to patients. And so telehealth, for example, at NURX, we've seen a surge of more than 50% of requests in birth control during the pandemic alone. So in addition to what already was a barrier, the pandemic added another barrier for birth control. Let's take, for example, you know, sexually transmitted illness. We've seen over 120% increase in requests for STI testing from home, over 200% increase in requests for things like herpes, over 300% increase in requests for things like emergency contraception. And that's something that uniquely affects women. 
We've also seen other conditions such as migraine. Women are disproportionately affected with migraines and with the stresses of the pandemic, the, the long hours that we spend in front of the screen, all of those things can make migraines worse. So at NERCS, we've lost the migraine line, for example, that allows us to treat women for these conditions. Just telehealth naturally it lends itself to being more accessible from a time perspective, right? So at the patient's convenience, what we do at Nurex is called asynchronous telehealth. So we are able to attend to these women any time of the day. So whenever they take a study break or a work break, when the kids are sleeping at night, right? That's when we're able to be there for them so that they can message in, talk to a medical provider and get those questions answered and prescriptions filled at their convenience. Not only are women less likely to have their symptoms taken seriously, but because of the lack of women's representation in the medical field, there is less research on the specific health issues that only affect women, and consequently, there are less treatment options. For example, a report by Refinery29 finds that the average time for a woman to receive a diagnosis of endometriosis is seven to eight years, with 40% of women needing 10 or more GP appointments before being referred to a specialist. We can start with talking about birth control. Lack of access to birth control creates unwanted pregnancies, and that is something that should be an essential care for every woman in this country. And so again, by being able to prevent unwanted pregnancies, the trickle effect of that is tremendous. Things like routine screening, again, for sexually transmitted disease, we also are able at NERCS to facilitate screening for HPV, which we know causes cervical cancer. So just even basic primary care that can have effects down the line of cancer prevention and chronic disease prevention is another way that we're addressing that issue. And by the way, we treat men as well, right? So men can also be afflicted with oral cancers from HPV, and we're also able to screen men. We can talk about things like migraine. Migraine is a chronic condition that causes tremendous debilitation. It causes a lot of work hours lost for people who are untreated or undertreated or mistreated. And again, we have consultant experts that give us evidence-based, state-of-the-line care for migraine patients. And we're able to do that, again, via this platform. The patient doesn't have to lose time from work, and it really facilitates them getting back into their regular work-life balance without having to be afflicted from migraines. So those are just some examples of these kinds of issues. In the United States, the overall rate of maternal deaths is more than triple what's seen in other wealthy countries and three times higher among black than white women, according to a Stanford Medicine report. Severe birth complications are rising, affecting more than one in every 100 births, with race playing a big role in who is most vulnerable. More broadly than the maternal health sphere, life expectancy closely tracks with lower income, less home ownership, more pollution and with race. Given the multiple impacts of racial inequalities on accessing and experiences of healthcare, it's not surprising that many people within racial and ethnic minority communities don't trust their healthcare providers to provide quality care. Here Jen explains how individual differences can compound the experience of inequality in medicine. We commented about contraceptive deserts. Those tend to be in those marginalized communities of the South or Middle America where there's not a lot of access to care. And traditionally, 
uh, those are folks of, of color, your Black and Latino communities. Obviously, we know now very well that COVID has disproportionately affected Black and Latino communities because of these barriers and the social determinants of health, things like access, transportation, finances, work, etc. And just because as uh, communities of color, we are more affected by higher incidence and prevalence of chronic conditions that predispose us to the virus, so hypertension, obesity, etc. So by addressing the lack of care in those areas of the country, that is one way that we are able to bridge access to care. For the trans community, in NURX especially, we are very well equipped and suited to deal with many of the conditions that affect that community and that are stigmatized, right? A lot of these folks have problems with access to care, but also just embarrassment to go to their local doctors or their local clinics to ask for STI testing that's so necessary for things like PrEP. We offer pre-exposure prophylaxis as well for HIV prevention. And so we, are, again, are just half the gamut of care that this community really needs. COVID-19 has rapidly increased the take-up of telehealth as patients have needed a way of accessing healthcare providers during lockdown. For example, Stanford Medicine reports that doctors went from seeing about 2% of patients virtually to handling 80% of patients through digital visits. Telehealth in many ways is the future of medicine, as it's one way to overcome the inherent inequalities in accessing healthcare, particularly for marginalized communities. Where you live, as defined by your postcode, is one of the strongest predictors of the healthcare that you'll receive. But with the emergence of telehealth, there's an opportunity to level the playing field. It's still new and it's going to take time for the medical community to adopt this without hesitation. One of the biggest things that we hear a lot is, for example, the tension of some of these companies trying to grow and maintaining high level of care. I can tell you, for example, at Nurex, delivering the highest standard of patient care is always the number one priority. It is mine as the CMO and I know the rest of the companies, that's the number one priority. But how do you balance that, right? And so we get that question a lot. And other thing that we hear a lot is technology. I mean, does technology reduce the patient safety or does it weaken that provider-patient relationship, right? You're not face-to-face -face in person with your patient, but it's actually quite the opposite. And I think we alluded to it a little bit before, because patients don't have to wait for an appointment, because they're able to get care sooner, more frequently, at their convenience, because their visits are not rushed. It's amazing. Patients actually are able to open up a lot more to providers in a way that normally an in-person appointment doesn't give them the opportunity to do. And telehealth is just as safe and effective as in-person care for the conditions that we treat, for example, at NERX, not for every condition, but for the ones that we treat for sure. And we have an excellent provider team of experts that know when to refer a patient to in-person care whenever the health history suggests that that is necessary and safer and a more appropriate choice for them. So it's just kind of re-educating the medical community of how to utilize, how to leverage telehealth in the safest way. Through telehealth as well, you know, we're able to achieve public health outcomes like some of the things we've talked about with access to things like birth control and reducing unwanted pregnancies, et cetera, that aren't always available through the traditional healthcare system. Again, in these types of contraceptive desert areas, we're able to really exceed standards of care because, again, you have more time. So you're not rushed. We do face a little bit of, of that pushback. <laughs> According to a 2018 HBR study, women account for only 18% of hospital CEOs 
and 16% of all deans and department shares in the United States. According to the report, there are many reasons for gender disparity in the medical C-suite, including a lack of access to mentors and sponsors, lower pay, and less institutional research funding. Here Jen shares why closing the gender gap in leadership positions is the key to tackling inequality in medicine. Particularly, this hits home for me, having come from a setting in the military that's very patriarchal and where there's still not as much representation in the senior ranks in healthcare that we would love to see. I think a lot of it is starting to turn the corner. When I went to medical school, you know, there were still less than 50% of the majority of medical school classes were women. And I know that a lot of medical schools have aimed to address recruiting students at that level. And so starting from the education education perspective, encouraging girls to go into STEM, to pursue careers in science and technology and medicine. And that has to start, you know, all the way from when the the children are in grade school and trying to instill that desire to pursue those careers. Then again, once in the healthcare field, opening up positions of leadership for women to pursue. It's unfortunate that still to this day, there's really not clear paths in many organizations to promote from within and promote up the ranks for women. And so I think that those are some of the things that we need to start addressing. But also from our perspective, right, women also have to feel comfortable in competing in this arena, really lose that fear of these beliefs that we're somehow less trained or less adequate for these senior positions. And that also has to come from within. And people like myself who have been fortunate enough to achieve some successes in this arena of healthcare and healthcare technology coming out and doing things like this and speaking directly to women in healthcare. And so I think it's a multifactorial approach that we have to take to really empower our women in healthcare community. I think COVID, again, sadly, really has highlighted the women healthcare workforce in response to this pandemic. I personally can share an anecdote of having had the good fortune of being asked to come and speak on television and seven different networks to do some medical contribution. And it became very quickly apparent to me that there weren't very many women in senior positions of healthcare in terms of of communications. And I hope that that's something that will change going forward. Having more representatives of women, of people of color, that those communities that have been disproportionately affected can relate to. And then I think that that also will go a long way. So yeah, those are probably some of the ways I would get started with this narrative. (laughs) Jen's experience of a lack of senior women in healthcare isn't unique. And this imbalance at the top is one of the causes of what's a worryingly persistent gender pay gap in the field of medicine. In the United Kingdom, the government commissioned a comprehensive study into this problem culminating in the publication of the 373-page Mend the Gap report in December 2020. The report found that overall the pay gap in medicine has grown over the past decade. Back in 2006, female doctors earned 24% less than their male colleagues. The gap rose to 39% in 2010 and fell again to 34% in 2016. Since 2008, Published data shows that female doctors working full-time have consistently earned a third less than male doctors. The picture isn't dissimilar over in the United States, where a 2020 study by Doximity found that the national gender wage gap for physicians had widened. In 2019, the gap was 25.2%, 2020, 
By the following year, that gap had widened to 28%. Here, Jen shares some actions we can take towards closing the gender pay gap in medicine. One of the things that's uh, near and dear to my heart is engaging and being a coach and a sponsor to women and younger women in healthcare, younger physicians, doing that same gender type of mentorship, holding peer groups. Those types of things go a long way. I was fortunate enough to have several mentors along the way in my career. And I have to be honest, if I didn't see that example or get that mentorship, I don't know that I would have gotten to where I got to. And mind you, some of my mentors were also men who were trying very hard to really close that gap. The other thing is really salary. We have to be advocates for closing that gap in salary differences with men and women, those inequities that female physicians and females in healthcare still face. So as much as we can, we have to be advocates for equal pay in this arena, just as much as we see it in sports and other professions. We have to really be advocates for that in medicine and in healthcare. We live longer and men who live with us live longer as well. <laughs> when it comes to solving workforce inequality in medicine, we need to concentrate not on changing women, but on removing the inequalities, structural barriers and implicit biases which impede their progress. One example of bias which shows up is the gender disparity in use of professional titles. Research into academic medicine suggests that when being introduced as speakers, a male doctor is much more likely to be referred to by his formal title than his female colleague. Removing this discriminatory mismatch could have positive implications for perceptions of authority for female medical professionals. Workplace sexual harassment is another form of inequality which needs to be urgently eradicated. Its prevalence for those working in medicine is alarming. According to a 2018 report by the National Academies for Science, Engineering and Medicine in the US, almost half of all medical students experience some form of sexual harassment before they even start their careers. If we want to advance women in any field, we need to create workplaces where they feel safe, represented, included and valued. And there's a clear connection between underrepresentation of female leaders within medicine and those gender inequalities in patient care which we discussed earlier. A 2019 editorial in The Lancet flagged research showing that gender balance in the clinical workforce can affect patient outcomes. For example, a 2018 study showed that female patients with acute myocardial infarction had higher mortality when treated by a male doctor than when treated by a female doctor, an effect that was attenuated when male doctors had more female colleagues and patients. So the gender pay gap and the gender pain gap are intertwined, and we need to tackle them both to ensure fairer outcomes for healthcare professionals and patients alike. Thank you for tuning in to our episode. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all again next week.